Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. A very exciting episode today. Um, I should offer this caveat. I am recording this intro after we've recorded the interview because we had some technical issues and got started late and I wanted to save time uh, for the conversation. Um, and... Uh, conversation is, is one way to describe what you're about to listen to. Uh, I had uh, uh, Professor Avi Loeb on, and Avi Loeb is the Frank B. Baird Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University. He led the first international project supported by the Strategic Defense Initiative and was a long-term member of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. He was the longest-serving uh, chair of the astronomy department at Harvard. Um, he's written eight books. His most recent ones are Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth, and Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. Um, as you can probably figure out from uh, those books and everything else, he is um, an expert in not just astrophysics and all that, but also in the conversation about uh, UFOs, extraterrestrial life, and whatnot. And um, uh, he's a joy to listen to, um, and uh, he has a lot to say. And um, it, it was a really interesting podcast. So uh, um, here we go. Uh, Professor Loeb, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is a weird way to get into this, but I, I got to ask, like, um, when you get on a plane and you sit down next to some stranger and they ask you, what do you do? Do you tell them the truth? <laughs> I mean, do you tell them that this is the stuff that you look into? Because I could see that sucking you into a giant conversation for the rest of the, the, the flight. I mean, well, my situation right now is I don't need to tell them anything. They know me already. <laughs> so in other words, I was on an island. I didn't know any of those uh, very wealthy individuals, but they came to me and wanted a selfie. <laughs> So, um, how did you get into this? Like, I mean, I know you're an astronomer, I, you know, I, I read your bio, uh, uh, you, uh, very established, um, and credentialed and prominent, uh, scientist, but how did you get pulled into the world of, of UFOs and extraterrestrials and all of that? Or did, or did you leap into it? I'm a scientist and, um, I'm, uh, I believe in the tradition of science in the sense that uh, we should be guided by evidence, not by how many likes we get on Twitter, not by groupthink. Uh, I grew up on a farm and uh, that taught me two things. First, uh, I'm very connected to nature and therefore I listen to nature. I want to be educated by nature. I, I don't feel that I know the answer in advance before getting the evidence. So that led me to become a scientist, which is pretty much being humble. It's supposed to be about being humble and learning from nature. And the second thing is I grew up on a farm, therefore I did not uh, participate, I was not a city uh, 
boy in the sense uh, of being very social. I, I was primarily uh, curious about the fundamental questions uh, in philosophy, about our existence and so forth. And I ended up uh, at a tenured appointment at Harvard University because of uh, circumstances in astrophysics. But then I realized, even though it was an arranged marriage, I'm actually married to my true love. Because in astrophysics, we are addressing fundamental questions that were of interest to me in philosophy, using the scientific method, which very much lines up with listening to nature and not to people. And um, I'm still using it. Now, most of my career uh, until 2017 was dedicated to the study of black holes, the study of the first stars in the universe. In fact, I was on the first uh, advisory committee that designed the Webb uh, Space Telescope. Uh, it was called back then the Next Generation Space Telescope. I was chair of the Harvard Astronomy Department for nine years, the longest serving chair. I was chair of the board on physics and astronomy of the National Academies uh, in the United States. So I was pretty much a part and still is part of the establishment. I'm the director of the Institute for Theory and Computation at Harvard. Um, but that did not remove my childhood curiosity. You see that what happens very often is that um, uh, as uh, we go up the academic ladder, uh, we are taking fewer and fewer risks because um, many of my colleagues, they want to get honors awards and be recognized by their peers, but that doesn't drive me. Uh, I'm interested in studying nature. And uh, even though I worked on topics that are sort of, um, that were at the time when I worked on them, like the first stars, not many people worked on them, but now it became a very fashionable topic. Uh, eventually, you know, it, it, it illustrated to me that I should not listen to uh, popular view. I should just do what I think is common sense because common sense is not common uh, when you're doing it. Um, and so in 2017, in October, there was the first um, object from outside the solar system that was discovered by a telescope in Hawaii called PanStars. And I was intrigued by that because I wrote uh, the first paper about objects from outside the solar system a decade earlier, uh, forecasting that this telescope will not see anything. And there he saw it. He saw it. So then the question is, what is this object? And of course, uh, the immediate thought was that it's a rock that came from another planetary system, just like the solar system has rocks left over from the construction project of the planets. Um, and then the more data we got on it, the more peculiar it looked. And uh, almost every paper in, uh, among the initial uh, papers written over the first year said that this object doesn't look like anything familiar to us. Uh, you know, it, the name was that was given to it uh, was Oumuamua, which means a scout in the Hawaiian language. And as it was tumbling every eight hours, the amount of sunlight reflected from it changed by a factor of 10, which meant that it has a very extreme shape. Uh, projected on the sky, it was at least uh, six to 10 times longer than it was wide. And uh, uh, we don't see such objects in the solar system, uh, such, uh, you know, with such an extreme shape. And also the fitting, the variation of light um, implied that it's flat at the 90% confidence. There is a very detailed paper on that. And, and then it was um, not showing any signs of cometary evaporation. The astronomers called it a comet, but there was no cometary tail. You know, if uh, you see an animal that has no stripes, you can't call it a zebra. So then uh, they said, okay, well, it's not a comet. Maybe it's an asteroid, just a rock. And and the problem with that was that it was uh, pushed away from the sun by some mysterious force, which usually for comets is because of the evaporation. The rocket effect is pushing them. And so the question is, what was pushing it? And I suggested since the variation was smooth, uh, the force was declining inversely with distance squared. I said it's it may be the sunlight reflected off the surface of this object that is pushing it. Uh, and for that, it had to be very thin. And nature doesn't make thin objects. So I suggested maybe it's artificial. And uh, actually in my latest, actually it's not the latest, the one before the, the latest uh, paper, uh, I published uh, a suggestion that such an object could be, for example, a piece of a Dyson sphere. You know, uh, Freeman Dyson 60 years ago uh, suggested that a very advanced extraterrestrial technological civilization might want to harvest all the starlight uh, from the star next uh, that hosts it 
for example, when we discuss clean energy, we're talking about using at best the energy intercepting the earth. But just imagine a mega structure surrounding the sun and using all that energy, which is a hundred million times more than intercepts the earth. Uh, so that's what he imagined. And uh, then I say, well, um, you know, the civilization might use it for a while, but eventually the star uh, brightens up to a level that they cannot stay on their planet. So they leave that planetary system and, and then the, the star basically breaks apart, uh, either as a result of asteroids imp impacting this structure or because of the radiation pressure from the star that it breaks apart this uh, structure if it's made of very thin uh, tiles of uh, light sails, for example. And, and uh, then you get them to be in interstellar spaces, in interstellar objects, and Oumuamua could be a piece of a broken Dyson sphere. That, this is just an example. It could be a, a space trash. And so that was my suggestion. That, was, that brought me uh, to this uh, subject of techno signatures in the, in the form of objects. You know, for 70 years, we've been searching for radio signals. It's just like waiting for a phone call at home. And uh, I realized that it makes more sense to check our backyard for any objects that came from the cosmic street. I mean, we tend to think, oh, we've seen a lot of rocks in our backyard that belong to our backyard. Therefore, anything that comes from the street must be a rock. Well, not true, because every now and then you find a tennis ball that was thrown by the neighbors. Yeah. So let me push back on that. Just to clarify on, on, on that point, um, you could also say, you know, walking on a beach looking for stuff that's not sand is going to leave you um, looking for a long time, right? I mean, it seems to me like radio signals or some other form of electronic form of communication would be more prevalent than debris that happened to wash up in our backyard that we could actually see. Oh, no, it's exactly the other way around because radio signals move at the speed of light. There is no other mm -hmm. speed that they can move at. And therefore, they escape from the Milky Way galaxy. So unless you are listening exactly at the time that they are traversing us, just like a uh -huh. phone call, if someone calls you and you are not at home, you will never answer that call, right? Yeah. So humans arrived to Earth. The human species started a few million years ago. The Earth is 4.6 billion years old. And we started listening just over the past century. So I'm saying, if you're listening just over a century out of 4.6 billion years, you know, what's the chance that they're transmitting exactly when you're listening? They need to be at the same phase of technological evolution because, you know, they may not be using radio communication anymore after several centuries. And it's not at all clear that they would be transmitting exactly when you're listening. So the difference is that any package, for example, that was launched at the speed of spacecraft that we sent out is moving below the escape speed from the Milky Way. So it cannot escape from the Milky Way disk. It just sits around and keeps accumulating over time. And that makes it much more likely to be found because it doesn't escape from the Milky Way. A radio signal that was sent a billion years ago is right now a billion light years away you are listening here, it's a billion light years away from you, you will never find it. Whereas if a package was sent a billion years ago, it's still around. And those packages keep accumulating over time. So the only question, just like plastic in the ocean, you know, the question is how much debris was sent out uh, from technological civilizations that we can look for. And it's not a philosophical question. It's not a question of you know, hypothesizing and so forth. And it's very different from the Drake equation that says, what's the chance that you will be listening to a radio signal that is transmitted just at the right time for you to, to, to hear it? It's very different from that. Because what you're asking is how many objects per unit volume are in the vicinity of Earth? That's all. And it's just like an archaeological, you can think of our our solar system is an archaeological site and you're asking, you know, there were past civilizations that sent debris and you're looking for the relics. That's all. And the calculation of how, what's your chance of success is very different. You know, we sent out five probes to interstellar space over the past 50 years. These are Voyager 1, Voyager 2, uh, Pioneer 10, Pioneer 11, and New Horizons. Just imagine if our civilization continues to produce uh, spacecraft for millions of years, 
you know, there will be a huge amount of uh, number of objects out there and most of them will be small. And only over the past decade, we were able to detect interstellar objects in the solar system. We found four. Two of them I discovered with my student, Amir Siraj. Uh, they are meteors, roughly a meter in size, and we can talk about them. Uh, the third was Oumuamua. The first two were in 2014 and uh, March 2017. Oumuamua was in October 2017. And the fourth one was just a comet, familiar comet as, as those that we have in the solar system called Boriso. And uh, the first three appeared very strange. Oumuamua, I already mentioned why. Uh, the first two meteors had material strength that is at least 10 times tougher than all other space rocks that we found in the solar system. And I can get into the details how we know that, but that's the bottom line. So they were of material composition that is an outlier relative to the rocks in the solar system. So I say, you know, what's the chance that the first three interstellar objects out of four would be so unusual, unfamiliar? It says something. It says that we need to collect more data. It's intriguing. And instead, what I hear from my colleagues is, no, it must be natural. It's a rock of a type that we've never seen before, but it's natural, period. End of discussion. Let's move on. And I say, no, it's actually very interesting. Let's figure out what it is. And um, in fact, that's the way science is done, by collecting more evidence. If you argue that an extraordinary claim requires extraordinary evidence, and then you close the argument, and it's a circular argument because you're not seeking evidence. I say extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary funding. <laughs> uh, for example, consider the dark matter. We don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. The most popular suggestion since the time I started astrophysics, which was uh, 35 years ago, was that it is uh, the lightest supersymmetric particle. Now, you might say, oh, the lightest supersymmetry. We don't know if supersymmetry exists. How can you talk about that being the most popular? Nevertheless, the mainstream of the scientific community said, we invest, we are willing to invest billions of dollars, $10 billion in the Large Hadron Collider to find supersymmetry. And you might say, oh, wait a minute. I don't want to invest anything because it's an extraordinary claim that requires extraordinary evidence. Well, the answer was, in order to collect the extraordinary evidence, you needed to spend $10 billion. Nobody said anything about that. And by the way, we spent that money and guess what? We didn't find anything. There is no supersymmetry in the parameter space that for decades was argued is the most natural for supersymmetry. Nothing found. Okay. Does anyone come back and say, oh, that was an extraordinary claim and we wasted money? No, nobody says that because that's the way science is done. However, we see already some objects, the first objects from interstellar space, which look intriguing, peculiar. And people say no money should be invested in the search for evidence of what these objects are. How can that be the case? I say there is some, something happened to the academic community that lost curiosity, you know, the childhood curiosity. When we see something, I'm not talking about a hypothetical possibility of extraterrestrial objects being of technological origin. I'm just saying the first three looked weird. They look unfamiliar. And in fact, there was a paper in Nature last week, okay? And everyone jumped up and down cheering. Why? Because this paper said, oh, Oumuamua was just a water iceberg that we are familiar with in the solar system. And the reason it didn't have a cometary tail is simple. This iceberg made of water traveled through interstellar space and was bombarded by cosmic rays. And the cosmic rays broke the water molecule, which is hydrogen and oxygen, broke it into hydrogen, separate from oxygen, about a third of the iceberg broke into hydrogen and oxygen. And when it came close to the sun, the hydrogen evaporated and hydrogen is transparent. It was actually a comet, but it's a dark comet. Dark comet is a concept that is basically an oxymoron because a comet is defined as an object that has a coma around it. Open any encyclopedia and you will see that a comet is an object that has a coma made of gas and dust. Yet, 
This paper in Nature that was published last week said dark comet is the explanation for Oumuamua, an oxymoron. Just like in uh, uh, George Orwell's uh, 1984 book, war is peace, ignorance is strength. Okay, <laughs> that's the and everyone in the mainstream said, "Great, now we have a solution." Not only the mainstream, but science journalists. You know, like there were many articles in all the major newspapers saying, "Problem solved." Oumuamua was a water iceberg. Now this paper appeared on Wednesday afternoon last week. On Thursday at noon, we submitted a paper to the Astrophysical Journal Letters showing that there was a mistake in that paper. What is the mistake? Energy conservation was not satisfied. This is a sacred principle in physics where all the atoms in the universe satisfy energy conservation. You can't say it's the opinion of one side of the argument to say energy conservation is not satisfied and another side says energy conservation is. No, physics requires energy conservation. It's not a political issue that two different opinions can be expressed and be equally valid, okay? Everyone practicing physics will tell you energy must be conserved. Now, what was the mistake? I can give an analogy. It's just like saying you bring a certain salary home and you say, okay, will the salary be sufficient to support my family? And you include only the rent and the utilities and you forget to include the cost of the food, okay? Then it wouldn't work. You can write a nature paper and say that my salary is sufficient to support my family, but if you forgot to include the food, you are wrong and you will be proven wrong in reality. It's not a viable solution. That's exactly the mistake that was made in this nature paper. They said energy from the sun, sunlight, is hitting the surface of the iceberg, the water hydrogen iceberg, and it's being radiated back to space from the surface. So they balance energy in with radiation out and they derive the temperature of the surface. And at that temperature, they show that hydrogen can evaporate and give you the boost necessary for the non-gravitational acceleration of Oumuamua. That's the paper. Now, what did they forget? They forgot the fact that in order to release hydrogen from the lattice, you need to invest energy. You need to release those hydrogen molecules from the surface. So that costs energy. When you put that in, you lose a lot of energy. Actually, it's a major component. And it turns out that the surface temperature is nine times smaller than estimated. And by the way, when I say surface temperature is nine times smaller, this term is almost 10,000 times bigger than the other cooling term of the radiation that they consider. So if it's nine times small, it turns out that there is just not enough speed in the molecules of hydrogen that, that evaporate to push the iceberg to the acceleration that was observed from Muamua. It's It just doesn't work, okay? And so I wrote this paper a day after the Nature paper appeared, and I mentioned it to all the science reporters and some of them, what is the answer? Some of them said, okay, we will incorporate um, uh, uh, that in our report. But most of them said, oh, too bad, uh, but we don't want to confuse our readers. And I say, that is misinformation. It's not a matter of confusing the reader. In science, there is right or wrong. If you don't do the energy conservation correctly and you don't report about that, you give the audience the impression, ah, problem solved, it's a, a water iceberg. It's not. This is wrong. In science, statements can be wrong if you violate a fundamental principle. It's not a matter of opinion. And I'm sorry to say that only a few of them responded in a way that maintains the integrity of science. The others are happier not to confuse the readers and give them the illusion that the problem was actually solved by a water iceberg. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have 
unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, of what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frames. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so uh, I want to... um. I want to put a pin in the, I mean, I, you've convinced me that Amumua needs more investigation. I want to put a pin in the sociology of science for a second and do some rapid fire questions about what we know and don't know about um, other aspects of potentially unexplained phenomenon, extraterrestrial life, the whole warp and woof. And so to, to, to start with, um, there was a whole bunch of vid- videos that were declassified in recent years. Um, and uh, what was re- refreshing about it was just simply that government officials said, yeah, we just don't know, which is, there's a incredible bias in public policy. I usually do public policy stuff on this podcast. Uh, there's an incredible bias against admitting error and second only to the bias against admitting error is the bias against admitting ignorance. Um, and so it was very refreshing to hear people say, we don't know. And so what do you, what do you think we know? What do you think are our best guesses about all that stuff? Yeah. Well, let, let me mention an anecdote. I was in the Washington National Cathedral in November um, 2021 and, uh, in the company of Jeff Bezos and Avril Haynes and Bill Nelson. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I was sitting next to Avril Haynes, the director of national intelligence, and Jeff Bezos was saying on the stage that uh, he was mostly uh, intrigued by watching Star Trek as a kid, and that led him to establish his uh, Blue Origins space initiatives. And I was, when I heard him, I told the Avril who was sitting next to me, I said, uh, you know, this makes little sense. I was never intrigued. I, I never liked science fiction because uh, I like science. I don't like the fiction part mixed with science because very often it violates the laws of physics. And she said, Avi, we have to work on you. <laughs> and that's the director of national intelligence. Now, what do I make of it? Uh, I make of it the following, that the government collects data. It's their day job to protect the nation. Okay. And national security risks. Uh, and um, it's their day job to monitor the sky, monitor the atmosphere. By the way, the first uh, interstellar meteor was discovered by U.S. government sensors, and, and the U.S. Space Command uh, confirmed our discovery of an interstellar meteor uh, in a letter sent to NASA. So the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense came to my defense because my colleagues in academia were not, did not believe it at first. 
Um, so um, what do I make of it? I, I make of it the following, that the government, of course, when, when it um, identified balloons that were made in China, uh, sh- shut them down. Okay, so um, the government uh, is very interested in human-made objects. Okay, but if everything looked as if it's human-made or natural, it could be, you know, birds or whatever, they wouldn't talk about it this way. Right? Why do I need to know? Why does the, I mean, there are lots of stories related to intelligence that are completely hidden from public view for good reasons. You don't want to um, release any information about how the US government sensors are operating or what do we know? You just don't want anyone to know about it. If it was all, I don't want them to know how we know it, right? Because there's sources and methods are important. Yeah, how we know it. You just don't want to bring it up. If you come forward to the U.S. Congress and say there are objects in the sky whose nature is unclear, to me, that's a very interesting assertion because the government admits that it doesn't fully understand something, which is a very rare situation. Okay. Moreover, uh, there was a new office established in government by Congress, uh, abbreviated as AARO. And the director of that office, Sean Kirkpatrick, came to my home about half a year ago and uh, talked with me because I established the Galileo project following uh, my book, Extraterrestrial. I got a lot of funding from uh, private individuals who were inspired by the vision. And, uh, And by the way, the public is extremely interested in this question. The government also. So the fact that scientists shy away from it, to me, is... um, inappropriate because we are, it's part of our civil duty to resolve issues that are of interest to the public, the taxpayers, and the government. And here is one. Um, so anyway, he came to my home and uh, said, you know, we should um, uh, write a paper together. And we did uh, about uh, using physics as we know it to interpret objects in the sky. And the reason uh, you know, he came to my home is because I established the Galileo project and we have a functioning observatory by now. It took us a year to build it. Um, and it monitors the sky 24 seven, uh, in the infrared. So it detects heat from objects even during nighttime, um, in the optical, it looks at the entire sky 24 seven and in the radio and audio. And then we feed the data into uh, an artificial intelligence uh, computer system that uh, classifies objects that we find based on their image, based on their trajectories, uh, and um, uh, tries to infer whether they are natural in origin, like bugs, uh, er uh, birds, clouds, or human-made, like uh, balloons, uh, um, uh, drones, airplanes, satellites, rockets. And the main objective is to see if there is anything else. So we have a functioning observatory that we are now testing, verifying, and uh, perfecting, and then we'll make copies of it and place them in various locations. Because, you know, the sky is not classified. What is classified is the government sensors used to look at the sky. So we don't need the government to tell us. I'm you know, waiting for the government to declassify information is like waiting for Godot in uh, Samuel Beckett's play. You can wait forever. I don't want them to reveal any secrets because I'm, you know, I'm a citizen that uh, you know, I'm as worried about national security risks as, as they are. You know, I, I don't want to force them to, to give us information that would be used for, by adversaries. Uh, but if they if they see things they don't understand, have nothing to do with national security, they don't need to show me the data. They just need to tell me, you know, just go to that location and look up and I will do it with my observatory. Because if it's a phenomenon that has nothing to do with national borders, as it should in the case of extraterrestrial visits, then scientists could figure it out. And the government is not a scientific organization. So in a way, my interests are 
complementary to the government. If anything is made in China, it's very boring for me. I don't care about it. I don't want to know about it. It's their job to shoot it down. Uh, but if it doesn't, I mean, also, if it looks like a bird, I'll be glad to send it to a zoologist. Uh, I'm interested in anything technological from outside of this earth. And, um, you know, that's just a scientific question. And it's sufficient to have one object of that type for it to change the future of humanity. And we are going to look for the relics of the first interstellar meteor, hopefully this summer, 2023, uh, and figure out what it was made of. Was it uh, a spacecraft from an artificial alloy like stainless steel? That's why it was perhaps tougher than iron. Or was it just a rock from a system very different than the solar system? So, I mean, I, just on that rock thing, I've been thinking about it since you brought it up. It seems to me there's a, a selection bias problem, right? Is that... Um, if you're talking about things that are coming from another solar system, another part of the galaxy, they have to travel vast amounts of space. It would make sense that the first things that show up are the things that are dense or hard enough not to disintegrate over billions of years of travel, right? Oh, no. Okay, so we, we did these calculations. So um, turns out <laughs> there, uh, it's a very dilute environment, inter, the interstellar uh, medium uh -huh. is very dilute and you don't get much damage out of that. So in fact, you know that um, the solar system extends to a hundred thousand times the Earth-Sun separation. It goes very far out. And the, the outskirts of the solar system is the Oort cloud, which is made of uh, rocks, that icy rocks that were tossed out of the inner part of the solar system. Now, um, the solar wind there is a wind coming from the sun. It protects us from uh, galactic cosmic rays out to a hundred times the Earth-Sun separation. And there it's being stopped by the interstellar medium. So most of the volume of the solar system is uh, in a region that is exactly identical to interstellar space for interstellar objects. So um, the comets that arrive to us, they are called long period comets that come from uh, the Oort cloud they are exposed to the same uh, interstellar cosmic rays as an object that travels through interstellar space because they are traveling through interstellar space unprotected. And uh, my point is there is nothing unusual about interstellar objects in terms of the environment that they're exposed to compared to most of the comets that come from the Oort cloud. Back to the, the declassified videos and whatnot. Um, are you ultimately agnostic about the thing? Because there's some of those things that you look at them and it's very difficult to, to think that they're naturally occurring phenomena because they're in the atmosphere, right? These are seen from planes and, um, uh, and at the same time, they're not, um, they don't seem to move like the manufactured technology that we have today. I am, this is not something I am deeply like I've, I've spent a lot of time on, but I, I, I'm fairly open-minded about it. I just don't have an explanation for it. Do you have an explanation that you, you're comfortable with? No, I think uh, the data that was publicly released is not convincing. Mm -hmm. It's fuzzy images. It's not, it's not clear what the instruments were doing at the time that the data was taken. There is a lot of um, eyewitness testimonies that, you know, I, I, as a scientist, I don't want to rely on eyewitnesses. I want to use instruments. And for a good reason, you know, when, when the World Cup in soccer took place in Qatar, the decisions about penalties were not made by asking the players, was there a penalty? There were video cameras recording what happened on the, you know, in the game. And, and that's how the decisions were made uh, based on uh, instruments probing what really happened. When there is a car accident that people are involved in, they report very different things about uh, what happened, even though it was the same event. So I don't want to rely on eyewitnesses because people have wishful thinking, it, they have hallucinations, all kinds of uh, psychological effects. Um, the way science is done is by using instruments. And um, that's what the Galileo project is doing. Now, the data released from instruments uh, from the U.S. government is really sketchy. You cannot use it to make any case that indeed we're looking at something extraterrestrial. But it, it, they might have much better data, of course. I haven't seen it. 
So what I would like to do is collect my own data and, and use the instruments that are well calibrated, that are fully under control, that are not in the cockpit of a fighter jet, but instead I, you know, I assemble them with my team and we know exactly what went into it. We calibrated them and we, it, it's just the standard scientific approach to collecting data and the data will be open to the public and the analysis will be transparent. So let's bring clarity to this by doing it the scientific way. That's all I'm saying. And what I find is you have two camps, just like in politics, it's very polarized. You have on the one side, scientists who argue, you know, the, there is nothing behind it and so forth. And on the other side, and, and they don't do anything to, to, to search. They are skeptics without seeking evidence. To me, that's a very dangerous proposition because it's an arrogant proposition. It's saying, I know the truth without even looking whether it's supported by data. Okay, people are talking about things and you don't want to collect any data about these things because you say you know already the answer. Uh, that's not the scientific method. Uh, and then you have on the other side, believers. Okay, so one side is skeptics, the other one is believers. And the believers, many of them, I should say, have, uh, they reject the scientific method. They say, we also know the answer. We know the answer. You don't need to look for data. And in fact, if you use the scientific me method, we don't necessarily believe you because maybe there is new physics. If we see a hole in the clouds, maybe it's a wormhole. And I say, that's nonsense. You cannot talk about new physics unless your evidence is extremely tight. Just seeing a hole in the clouds does not make you... You have to rule out existing physics first before you get to appeal to... New physics. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the, because scientists, I mean, physicists for decades are trying to find evidence for new physics. And it's really difficult. Why? Because the physics, as we know, it describes all facets of reality to exquisite precision. True, there is a whole contingency within the mainstream of theoretical physics that talks about speculations like extra dimensions, the multiverse. I say this is not adding to the credibility of science, the fact that the mainstream of theoretical physics has been talking for 50 years about things that we can't test. That's also bad. But, uh, you know, uh, just believing in new physics based on a hole in the clouds is not science, okay? And when I try to apply physics as we know it to things that we see, they get upset, <laughs> those believers. They say, how dare you? There was someone else claiming a hole in the clouds 20 years ago, and you now say that it's not new physics? And I say, well, who cares about what these people say? I don't care about them. I want to, to have exquisite uh, evidence that, you know, that is obtained by instruments that I'm familiar with. And only if I'm pushed with my back to the wall after collecting all this evidence, I'm unable to explain the data with known physics, only then I will contemplate new physics. That's the way science is done. See, it's, it's, it's funny because you're in this strange position where... You know, there's that line from Max Planck where he says science advances one funeral at a time. Um, and um, and so on the one hand, you're this defender of existing physics, which I salute you for. But on the other hand, the people you're arguing with on the science side don't actually want to test propositions that challenge existing physics, yeah. which is weird. As I, as I always say, common sense is not common. What can I say? That's true also in politics, taking the middle ground. I mean, both the, the right and the left have uh, issues, okay? But very few people take the middle, middle road. And you ask yourself, why? Well, it's, you know, it's the herd mentality, the fact that you want to belong to a tribe that, um, you know, uh, is very evident throughout human history. We, we enjoy the company of others. We prefer to live in a bubble, in a tribe that agrees with us. Taking the middle ground is problematic because each side has its problems and you have to point them out and then you're not part of the tribe. Oh, there's a reason why this podcast is called The Remnant, by the way, because it's basically that phenomenon. <laughs> um, but the, um, so I want to get to the something, I, I, my friend Megan McArdle's, uh recently talking about this on another podcast. Um, you know, there was this famous doctor, basically he was one of the guys who discovered germ theory, uh, Ignatz Semmelweis. And he realized that basically, baby, I, I, maybe I'm butchering this, but babies who were born to midwives, um, the mothers had much better uh, mortality rates than babies born to surgeons. And the reason was, was that surgeons in the 1840s um, 
had a practice of not washing their hands, including after doing autopsies and all sorts of horrible things. And so then you get into the business of giving, delivering a baby, you're spreading horrible germs, sepsis, whatnot. And he said, look, wash your hands, put some like mild disinfectant on your hands. You'll save lots of lives. And the reason I bring this up is it was too terrible to contemplate that so many doctors who presumably got into the business of being doctors to save lives were actually killing people that they turned on him for challenging the existing order, sort of a, you know, Galileo kind of situation. And, um, and he ended up having his life ending quite poorly. Some of wise, there are some things that, that, you know, this is a very Thomas Kuhn point about, you know, paradigms and whatnot, but there are certain things that the established scientific communities get bought into that if you challenge it too much, you're not just challenging their funding stream, which I think gets too Marxist in terms of its explanations. You're, you're challenging their status, right? You're challenging their professional um, uh, niche in the at the top level of an academic ecosystem. Yeah. And it seems to me that the whole topic of extraterrestrials is so, it's, it's almost a perfectly design, genetically engineered pill to mess with the psyches of people who want predictability yeah. in, in yeah. intellectual enterprises. I completely agree, and um, but I don't care. <laughs> you know, I will be the child, like in Hans Christian Andersen tale, that will say the emperor has no clothes. So when we see a comet that the, the adults in the room claim it's a comet and there is no cometary tale, I will be the child that would say the emperor, in this case, Oumuamua, has no clothes. In this case, cometary tale. I will just say that. I don't care what other people. Uh, and... You know, if you look at uh, a, a more recent example to the phenomenon you, you mentioned, it's the uh, the competition between two ideas about the origin of COVID-19, mm -hmm. right? So when uh, it broke out, uh, some people suggested it may have been a lab leak because there is a the Wuhan lab and uh, it's quite possible. I mean, not intentional, but right. that somehow because they were playing game of function there and somehow it came out and... And of course, the main uh, stream of the academic establishment said that that's racist. How dare you bring this up? It must have come from the wet market. Across the street from this lab, which was a big coincidence. Yeah, across the street. <laughs> exactly. But then there was no evidence for a particular animal. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so still, uh, it was academically, you know, if you were to argue that it came from the lab, it was uh, suicidal, basically, for any academic to, to, to say that at that time. And then uh, comes the Department of Energy and the FBI claiming that uh, they think most likely it came from a lab. Okay. And that's recent. Right. Uh, of course, um, people would say, oh yeah, maybe now it's, but here is a, an example where uh, a, a simple scientific matter was uh, polarized uh, for the wrong reason. I mean, if you think about it, it either came from this or that, and we should base our assertion on evidence. And, and the reason it's important is because you want to prevent a Chernobyl, a biological Chernobyl in the future. So you want to know where it came from. And uh, just a week ago, I heard a very prominent, I heard uh, secondhand, a very prominent scientist uh, saying, I don't want to know where it came from, frankly. Now, why would he say that? He doesn't want to know whether it came from the wet market or a lab. Why? Because if it came from a lab, it may tarnish the image of science as advancing the good of humanity. Okay, because here it is. We created a pandemic that uh, killed so many people by playing with dangerous viruses in the lab. Okay, so that's not good for science. And so he would prefer not to... No. And I say, once again, it's, it echoes this quote from 1984 by George Orwell, ignorance is strength. And how can a prominent scientist make the argument just two weeks ago that ignorance is strength? Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. I, I, I've had Matt Ridley on here a few times, who's the former science writer for the science editor for the yeah, Economist. I met him in person uh, three weeks ago, and he was always very judicious about it. He wasn't saying we know it. We're saying that we have enough evidence that we should keep asking the questions, right. 
until they're satisfied. I told my students in class, I said, knowledge is strength, not ignorance. You want to know in order to mitigate risks for the future. You want to know the cosmic neighborhood that we live in. You want to know if there are extraterrestrials or not, and if they are smarter than we are, because you need to adapt to that. Just promoting ignorance and claiming that we are the only smart ones in our cosmic neighborhood because that flatters our ego, you know, is actually childish. The mature approach is to say, let's find out. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So let's get back to the, the, that, that project. Um, just for clarification, you're not saying that Oumuamua is necessarily technology. You're saying that it doesn't fit, the explanations for it so far don't work, so we need to know more. Exactly. Okay. Assuming that it, we're not going to get clarity on a Muumua anytime soon, um, that's dispositive. Um, more broadly, what what is the best place you think you'll find or we will find um, confirmation of extraterrestrial life? What form will it take? Right. So my first approach is uh, to retrieve the relics of the first interstellar meteor that uh, uh, exploded above the Pacific Ocean in, on January 8th, 2014. And uh, we are going there this summer in 2023, and we will study the composition of whatever was left from it, if we find it. And based on the composition, we should be able to distinguish between an artificial object like a spacecraft, technological relic, or a rock of a type that we've never seen before. Because we know that the material strength was tougher than all the space rocks that came from the solar system. Okay, So that's the first uh, thing that I'm seeking right now. And I received the one and a half million dollars from a donation to do this uh, expedition. There is no federal funding for studying uh, in, uh, extraterrestrial objects near Earth. Okay, so I'm, I'm getting all my funding from uh, individuals and uh, gladly the public is extremely excited about this, uh, uh, this research. And in fact, there was just a poll today on Twitter um, asking people what do they think uh, Oumuamua was, uh, an iceberg, uh, an asteroid, uh, a comet, or a technological uh, object. And um, 54% said it's a technological object, and uh, uh, 11 or to 20% the other options. And um, so um, the public understands that this is an exciting uh, problem, but I get a lot of pushback within the academic community. Now, the next uh, uh, goal is, of course, to use the Galileo Project Observatory to look at unidentified aerial phenomena. And on this, as I said, I'm happy to partner and help government because they need to know what objects are uh, if they are human-made. And I don't care about those that are human-made. So we, we complement each other, and I'm happy to provide ex the expertise that we developed in uh, building this observatory and making copies of it. Um, and for them to figure out all those that are human-made, but for me to see if there is anything else, okay? Uh, so that's the second objective, and how quickly we will see something unusual depends on, you know, whether it's ubiquitous, whether there is something unusual that is, you know, it's a road that was not taken before, in the words of um, Robert Frost, uh, and there is a chance of uh, finding low-hanging fruit. That's So within a year or two, we might 
announce something, you know. Uh, and the third, uh, the third path um, that we are taking within the Galileo project is to design a space mission that will come close to the next Oumuamua. We have a dating app in the form of the Vera Rubin Observatory in Chile that will start operations in a year. It will have a, a camera with 3.2 billion pixels, a thousand times more pixels than you have on your cell phone, and that will survey the southern sky every four days. And there is a good chance it will see objects like Oumuamua again. These are the size of a football field and passing within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. And when we see the next Oumuamua, we would like to have more data on it now that we are intrigued. And for example, the Webb telescope is located a million miles away from Earth. And if you observe uh, uh, the next Oumuamua with the Webb telescope and with a telescope on Earth, you are seeing it from different directions. And um, you can use that to pin down the very precisely the distance to the object. It's called parallax, just like you use your two eyes to figure out distances to things in front of you. Um, and um, that would allow us to figure out if there is any additional force acting on the object other than the gravity from the sun, if there is any propulsion. So, so that would be very exciting, and I, I very much look forward to the next Oumuamua and trying to figure out more about it because, unfortunately, I mean, I would love to have a close-up photo of an object like Oumuamua because it would save me the effort of writing a, a book about it. I wrote a book that um, you know took 66,000 words, and a single high-resolution image is worth more than 66,000 <laughs> words. So uh, one last thing. On the... This is something that that I've always been a little on the paranoid side about, which is um, the dangers of, of of an asteroid impact, that kind of thing. Um, uh, up until fairly recently, I know we've gotten a lot better. Up until fairly recently, there was just a lot of space that we weren't monitoring, um, and the the threat of an asteroid is not that scary if you spot it early enough and it's terrifying if it sneaks up on you. Um, right. Where do we stand on all of that now? Or, right. So the U.S. Congress uh, tasked NASA back in 2005 to find 90% of all the objects bigger than a football field that uh, may hit the Earth. And the reason is, of course, the lesson we learned from the dinosaurs. 66 million years ago, there was an asteroid, I mean, a rock, the size of Manhattan Island that impacted the earth and killed the dinosaur. So the human brain is more powerful than the body of a dinosaur. So we can use telescopes to figure out if objects are getting close to, to us. And that's why PanStars in Hawaii was built. It, it's supposed to survey the sky and uh, look for objects the size of a football field or bigger that may come close to earth. And that's why it flagged Oumuamua because it was roughly the size of a football field and it came close to Earth. So it, it flagged it as a near-Earth object, and then it realized that it's moving too fast to be bound to the sun. And then um, the next uh, observatory is the Vera Rubin Observatory that I just mentioned in Chile, and it will go uh, two-thirds of the way. Uh, it will be able to identify 60% of all objects bigger than the size of a football field uh, that may hit the Earth. Uh, there is nothing in the immediate future, definitely, that will uh, come, you know, very close to Earth. We know that already, but we want to find more than 90%. That's what Congress asked. Uh, by the way, the size of a football field is like a factor of 100 smaller than the size of the meteor that killed um, the dinosaurs. Right, but, um, so, but, but, but I, I, I'm fairly confident that football field is not a precise scientific measurement. Um, is the reason for that that size is that that size and smaller are not extinction level event impacts if they hit the atmosphere? No, no. Okay, this is the size of an object that, with present day telescopes like PanStars, we are able to see the reflection of sunlight from such an object within the orbit of the Earth around the Sun. So you know the distance of the object and it reflects sunlight, and you ask yourself, what? does the size of the object need to be so that there will be enough sunlight reflected from it so that you would notice it with existing telescopes. Turns out to be roughly the size of a football. Now, of course, if an object 
collides with Earth and burns up in the atmosphere as a meteor, the fireball that is generated is easily visible. So um, the meteors that I mentioned before, like the interstellar meteor, the first interstellar meteor was much smaller than a football field. It was roughly half a meter in size, you know, a quarter of the size of a person, uh, the size of a watermelon. And the reason we noticed it, government sensors noticed it, is because it released a few percent of the energy output of the Hiroshima atomic bomb when it exploded. Every year, there is an object the size of a person colliding with Earth from the solar system, and it releases as much as the Hiroshima atomic bomb. So we have an atomic explosion in our atmosphere every year from a rock colliding with Earth. It happens at a, an elevation of about 30 kilometers, so it doesn't do much damage. Most of the time, it's above the ocean. Nobody talks about it. And um, so the point is, you can detect, if you use the Earth as a fishing net, you can detect smaller objects. But if you're just relying on the reflection of sunlight, we're dealing with objects the size of a football field, and we don't want those to hit the Earth. So that's why Congress sort of defined that as a threshold. So, but if something, say, half the size of a football field actually went into the atmosphere, is that would oh that would be huge it would be like that would be huge would be tsunamis i mean what what what's the damage impact of something like that well yeah if if it hits the ocean it would create a tsunami it will also release uh, the amount of energy it will release is um um thousands of times more than the hiroshima atomic bomb so still something to worry about <laughs> oh definitely that would be huge um so um you're right that uh, we should improve our sensitivity in the future and perhaps be more cautious about what is around the earth. And uh, to me, that would serve a very important purpose because, uh, you know, we may be missing a lot of objects passing near earth that are of interstellar origin. Oumuamua was big. NASA never launched a spacecraft as big as Oumuamua. Uh, and so most of our, the objects that we send to space are much smaller than a football field by at least a factor of 10, and they may be passing by without us not noticing them. So it would be really useful to invest funding in moni a monitoring program, perhaps from space, of all the objects that are within the orbit of the Earth around the sun, looking for objects that are much smaller than a football field. And of course, we might detect extraterrestrial technological objects this way. And I should also mention that it's not only the size that we are missing, but also the speed because astronomers are used to looking for rocks and the rocks of the solar system move at a speed that is 10,000 times smaller than the speed of light. Very slow moving rocks. These are the rocks bound to the sun uh, in the vicinity of Earth. But um, if you imagine spacecraft, they may move much faster than that. And astronomers would never detect them because they would see just one image uh, of, of it showing up and then disappearing. So they would not be able to make sense of it. They will not know at what speed it's moving. So I would argue small things and fast moving things are definitely missed by astronomers right now. And only over the past decade, we started seeing inter interstellar objects. We have a lot to learn. And the strange thing is my colleagues in academia are not supporting it. However, the public cares about it. The government cares about it. And and guess what? Most of the money is with the public and the government. So why do we need to, uh, why do we need to 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 surrender to this pushback? Um, and it doesn't make any sense. Okay, I know you have a you have another interview you have to get to. I really want to thank you for going uh, for doing this with me. I'd love to have you back. I've, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of follow up questions from from listeners. But Professor Avi Loeb, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Professor Loeb has. Um, Left the studio, and uh, I'm very interested in the feedback from people about this one. Uh, we got a lot of requests to do uh, this these topics. I feel like we have not exhausted the topic, um, but this was a um, um, an audacious, um, more than just a toe dipped into it. And um, um, we'll see if people want to have more. Uh, his, I should say that that bit about the paper about. Oumuamua and not being an iceberg and all that, that's actually, um, you know, let's put it this way. People come to this podcast for breaking news in the realm of astrophysics. We all know this. 
And um, that's sort of what he did there in terms of his, this argument. It's not been covered a lot. Um, and so you can go dine out on that. Uh, but anyway, uh, I want to thank Professor Loeb again. He's again, his book is extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond earth and interstellar, the search for extraterrestrial life and our future in the stars. Um, so thanks to Professor Loeb. Thank you all for listening. And I will see you next time. לא, אתה לא תראה אותי שוב בגלל שזה פודקאסט. לוקי לנד קסינו, אסקינג פיפל, וואטס דה ווירדס פלייס יו גאטן לוקי? לוקי? אין ליין את הדלי, אגס? אהה, אין מי דנטיסט אופיס. מורד אין וואנס, אקשולי. דו אי הב טו סיי? יס, יו דו. אין דה קאר, בפור מי קידס פי-טי-איי מיטינג. ריאלי? יס. אקסקיוז מי, וואטס דה ווירדס פלייס יו גאטן לוקי? אי נבר ווין אין טל. וואל, דר יו הב איט. יו קאן גט לוקי אניוור, פלייג את לוקי לנד סלוטס דוט קאם. פלי פור פרי רייט נאו. אר יו פילן לוקי? נו פרצ'ס נסיסרי. וויד רפרוהיבי בי לוק. 18 פלוס. טרמס אין קדישנס אפלוקי. סי וופסייט פר דיטיילס.